This is America Unfiltered, a fresh, raw look at American politics, foreign policy, and media. With me, Liam Kennedy in Dublin. And me, Scott Lucas in Birmingham in the UK. Scott, it's just more than a month ago that George Floyd died in the United States, sparking off protests across that nation. And of course, those protests have now spread across the world. Now, this is something we've been thinking about and talking about for some weeks. And recently, we uh, did a podcast in the UK. We looked at the context there. Uh, we looked at what did it mean to react to Black Light Matters in a, in a British context. Today, we're going to move on to Ireland, where again, we'll see there are some similar issues, but very distinctive local issues at work too. But just before we do that, I mean, where do you see this uh, ruling protest at at this point in time? Well, I think more than a month after George Floyd's murder, we're at the point where the rubber has to hit the road. And by that, I mean, uh, the marches have done a great deal to galvanize attention that we've got a problem here. We've got issues here, whether it's police violence in the United States or whether it's the wider economic and social issues, you know, disparities in jobs, disparities in health, which isn't just an American issue. It's here in the UK. It's in Ireland. It's across the world. But it's one thing to be able to march and to express that desire, we must do something, and then to have to try to negotiate or navigate your way to getting effective action going on. So take an example, this as we speak from the United States, Senate Republicans are going to block a real significant attempt at police reform in the United States, but they're going to blame it on Democrats. Oh, we had our own limited measure. We were going to do something, even though it wasn't very significant. So- it's all your fault. Now just go away. Or if you talk in the United Kingdom, the attempt by the government to sort of divert this and say, oh, you pulled down some statues. You know, what about our glorious heritage? When the key issues are, for example, wait a minute, in the middle of coronavirus, what are you doing about black and minority ethnic communities in terms of, of really making sure the health system and the economic conditions are responsive to them? Because these aren't issues that are solved in a day or a week because they are institutional, they are structural which means you have to have not only a wider conversation, but sort of an ongoing conversation. Okay, so time is really involved here. And one assumes that in the States and also perhaps in this side of the Atlantic, there are authorities who are not really keen to to, to give this time. They want to deflect, they want to disrupt, they want to point at other things. Um, do you think we can move from protest to policy action, uh, either in the US or, or, or over here in the UK or in Ireland? Well, the short answer is we have to. I mean, if we don't move from protest to action, then you're in a Groundhog's Day effect where a year, three years, five years from now, it's not just that there'll be another incident of violence. It will be that we look and you still have income inequality. You still have people who have inadequate housing. You still have people that have different experiences with education. Or in Ireland, since you're going to be discussing this today, you know, you're still going to have the issue of refugees and of the fact that Ireland is a country which does have racial issues, even as it comes out of being, quote, oppressed in the past. Uh, you know, the, the slogans and myths organize our lives. You know, we tend to put our banners up on polls, and it's good to see some banners saying black lives do matter. But at the end of the day, banners, whether they're negative or positive, they stand in the way of what really has to be done and has to be done in a way that it's not just one community or another community, because otherwise they'll pick you off. They'll say that the autonomous zone in Seattle is radicals and extremists, 
or they'll say that here in the United Kingdom that this is just simply left-wingers who are causing trouble. This has got to be a united effort, which we realize cuts across community and national boundaries. And right now, this could change, but right now it does look like that's happening, doesn't it? I mean, it seems to me the American media, American politicians are actually struggling to keep up with what's happening. They're not in control of the narrative. And that's a, that makes this a very strange and interesting time. Is this the same, do you think, in the UK? And we're going to talk about Ireland in a minute. This is the moment, I think. I, I look at the fact that the protests in the US have more than 80% support and That didn't even happen at the height of the 1960s with the civil rights movement. It certainly didn't happen in the 1990s after the Los Angeles uprising. We haven't done polling in the United Kingdom, but I do get a lot of impressions that the combination of going through coronavirus and realizing that community is important and then seeing these issues being raised, there's a lot more resonance for it. But you cannot underestimate what's going to be thrown up in the way. I mean, it's not just Donald Trump is going to put in all caps, law and order and try to turn this into a narrative that he's just cracking down on troublemakers. You're talking about someone like a Boris Johnson here who will invoke all the myths of a white England, not UK, but a white England, which says you can't disrespect Winston Churchill. You can't disrespect our heritage. You're giving the lie to history when, in fact, we're actually trying to clear the way the myths of history. And again, I'm sure in in Ireland that at a point where you're talking about establishing a government, for the near future, and you're trying to deal with the pandemic, and you're trying to deal with deep-seated issues in terms of your relationships with the North and with the UK, you've got to find the space to look inside communities as well, and not just simply say, we'll leave that for another day. Well, that's happening in Ireland. There's no question about it. I mean, there has been you know large-scale protests here where there's been lots of references to the United States. But also within that, and even more on the sidelines, there's a lot of new attention being paid to issues of racial inequality in Ireland. In order to understand that more fully, I caught up with Dr. Eben Joseph. Eben is a scholar, an author, an intercultural consultant, and an activist. And she's been providing cogent insights on race and racism in Ireland for some time. And she's going to talk about how we can address issues of racism in a country country where not everyone seems to register that that exists. One of the reasons we keep going back to zero, you know, when those things happen, then it seems like it's fresh. And we're like, no, this has been existing. This has been happening. You know, it's not even 50 years old. It's not 100 years old. It's, 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 you know, it's as long as the notion of race has existed. And I think the key thing is because we actually do not understand in this new generation, we do not fully understand the meaning of the concept of race why it was set up, and how it continuously, it is created and formulated in such a way that it will continue to reproduce the racisms that we see today. You know, and so the the key thing is if we go back to the understanding of race and racism, what is it? You know, so when we look at race, that race was initially, was originally set up to separate groups of people. So it was supposed to set up those who were seen as superior, as a special group of people, as better than others, and to separate them from those who we see as inferior. So the foundation of the idea of race comes from a place that it is set up in such a way that the result it produces is racism. So it's like a tree, and the fruit of the tree is racism. If you water that tree or the plant, it will produce. So race has been set up to produce a byproduct and that byproduct is racism. 
And so when people think of racism and they are thinking of the KKK and the, you know, the hood on the head, I'm like, no, that is extremism. That is when people go to the extreme, you know, but the key one is that everyday occurrence, that taking for granted, the one that is reproduced without you even doing anything. You know, like you show, all you just need to do is to show up and the law and the policies are already in place to work against you. You know, Dubois talks about, um, W.E.B. Dubois, he talks about that the problem of the 21st century is the color line. And so when he said this long ago, we're saying that right now in 2020, the color line is still the problem. And that color line has been put in place to separate some people. We, we go back to all the scientific racism where they try to prove that the shape of people's heads or the size of their backside or the size of their lips was an indication of the quality in their brain. So we see all of the scientific racism. Then we moved you know, to different forms of racism. And today we, we now have what we call a socially constructed understanding of race and racism. But it's still there. We are still constantly trying to look for reasons why some people do not do as well as others, why some people are more in prisons than others. So rather than looking at ourselves and our system, you know, we want to look at others and to blame the victims for their victimization. One of the people you went to to cite, you know, is 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 Du Bois. You know, um, a, a great intellectual figure um, associated with African American history, of course. Uh, and he talks about the color line and about double consciousness. That color line, though, of course, is is not static, is it? It it shifts, it moves around with geography and history. Where's the color line in Ireland? You know, if we take this question of the protests from the United States to Ireland, what's Irish about this issue today? In the academy, we understand scholarship um, around, um, you know, the color line that it shifts and that race or the racism and the meaning of race changes with time and space. You know, that the meaning of racism in 1800, <laughs> you know, to what race meant in the 1900s, then to when we had the civil rights movement to 1960, and then to what we have in 2000, that the meaning of race keeps changing. The same way we also see that the meaning of race in South Africa is different from the meaning of race in, in, in Nigeria. It's different from how we experience, let me not say just the meaning, but how we experience race and how it impacts on people. But the bottom line, though, is that no matter where you are, race and racism is a pejorative um, notion and that it is made to keep some people out and keep some people in. But in different jurisdictions and different locations, it is understood um, and it impacts on people's lives you know, differently. So while we say that race is not real on one hand, because biologically, you know, there is more difference you know, within a group than across groups. So that's why we say that biologically, that race is not real. However, in the everyday impact, in the, in the way it affects human lives, you know, race is real, you know. And so when we come to Ireland, you know, so when we come from the United States, you know, and that's biggest challenge, you know, they're like, oh, but, you know, you guys don't have a gun to your head. You know, we're not, you know, we're not doing stop and search, you know, you don't have to say hands up, you know, and all of those things, you know. So, so it's like, so that's in the United States. So we keep, you know, pointing people to say that's in the United States and it's worse over there. So, but when we come back, let us begin to look at what does race mean to us who are here in Ireland, 
you know? So the first thing I would say that race meaning, where you begin to see race play out in Ireland, is when you go to the labor market and you see that even with 1.2% of African descent, with about, you know, 15% of the working population in Ireland being of migrant descent, when you go to the labor market, the higher up you go, the whiter it becomes. And I'm not just saying whiter, I mean like white Irish it becomes. So you begin to ask yourself, where is the 15%? Yeah? So we begin to see that, okay, there is something playing in here. What is the dynamics? What is happening here? Why is it that, you know, the higher up you go, you know, you find, you know, um, only this particular group in there. When you go to taxi driving or care, you know, as care assistant or healthcare jobs, you can find uh, more of a mix. And then you look at the United States and you see all the anti-Jemima and then you see all of the, you know, the traditional understanding of people of color or people who are black as good to care for your children, care for other people's children, to be cleaners and all of those things. Then you begin to see that, okay, so the meaning of race in the United States where we see black people as into care and healthcare people is also the same thing that is playing out in Ireland. You know, and so when you look again at our census statistics, you see that pre-COVID nineteen, the unemployment rate for uh, in Ireland was about five point four percent. So it was like we were at a really good place as a nation. However, from our twenty sixteen census and from the research that people and I have, like me, have done, it begins to show that this windfall that Ireland had was dependent on your skin color. Because you find that when you go to our census statistics and from our research and interviews, the unemployment rate for Eastern Europeans in Ireland, for, for Western Europeans, was between 5% and 8%. For Eastern Europeans, it was between 13% and 18%, 19%. For Africans, it was between 43 and 63%. So we're saying that if you're an African in Ireland, your unemployment rate is about five to eight times that of the natives. And this is not because they do not have the right to work. These people have the right to live and work in Ireland. So you begin to see, you ask yourself, as sociologists, we ask ourselves, so what is going on here? I assume the answer the, the sociologist comes up with would be structural racism. In other words, this is a form of racism that's embedded in the institutions. It's embedded in questions of access to, to health, to education, and so on. It, it, it seems to me that's one of the areas where there is education required for people to understand something, which, if you're at the receiving end of it, probably seems glaringly obvious. You know, and, and those are just really key things that, you know, we come back and we look at, you know, so again, and, and I I, and I'm, I am a little bit happy that the conversations we're having today, well, the conversations I am having online, you know, with a lot of people is I'm directing them to policies. I'm saying leave the individuals, you know, we're looking for individuals to blame. We're looking for our neighbors to blame. We're trying to blame the young kids who are using the N word, you know, on the street. I'm like, no, leave the individuals. We need to look at the policies that we have in place. We need to look at how these ideas, these racist ideas, how we are perpetuating them, how we're reproducing them, how are we teaching you white supremacy? 
How am I teaching you to be a white supremacist without putting on a hood? How am I teaching you that being white is superior to... So where is that coming from? Because a lot of the young people today, um, they were not there during the time of um, the slave era. They were not there. So where are we getting it from? And so key things I'm talking about is that... And so in a lot of my work and in what I'm talking about today is that we have inherited these racisms that we have. So most of us who are alive today, what we are seeing is a, a space that was inherited. We've inherited these racist ideas and these racist um, policies. And so we have a job. When you get an inheritance, you decide what you want to do with that inheritance. Do you want to keep it? Do you want to maintain it? Do you want to share it with the next generation? So what a lot of us are doing, a lot, a lot of people are doing is that this racism that we have inherited, that one group is more superior to the other, we are sharing those same stories. In critical race theory, we call them stock stories. So when we talk to each other, we share these stock stories. You know, this um, uh, uh, dominant discourse, that's the dominant discourse you hear when 12 white people, when 12 white managers are sitting together, I can just be a fly on the wall and I can hear the conversation that is going when they talk about people of migrant descent. You, it will burn a hole through you, really, you know, because they talk about like when you ask them, oh, why is your organization so white? You know, why don't you have people that say, oh, their education is not from here. Oh, you know, um, they don't apply, you know. So they tell you those kind of stories because those are the stories that we say to ourselves and helps us to feel comfortable with the level of inequality that we are perpetuating, you know, in our system. So again, it is it is looking at those racist ideas, how we are sharing them, you know, those stories that we share really key, you know, and we perpetuate that cycle. Do you feel we're at a point where that cycle can finally get preferably broken, but at least interrupted or disturbed? And I'm thinking of these protests that have happened here in Ireland over the last few weeks, which are on a scale that has surprised a great many people. Do you see this as an important moment in breaking that cycle? If so, how do you move from the moment on the street to challenging policy and mindsets in the way you've talked about 25th of May 2020 is going to go down in history. Things have changed. The dial has moved. The blinkers are off. You know, people who who said, you know, it, it, I think it's like a, I think it's like a Rosa Parks moment. I think that you know, George Floyd's dying. You know, and and and, and it's sad that George Floyd had to die. You know, um, but I think that you know, the death of George Floyd coincided with COVID nineteen, and that COVID nineteen was the was the bedrock that with the lockdown and with everything that was happening with COVID-19, we all suddenly had a place. We were calm. There was quiet. You know, the usual hustle and bustle and the running around was not there. And so three things happened on about the same week that George Floyd died. We had Aubrey, you know, Ahmad Aubrey's death. We watched that. I mean, like, I saw the shot, the gunshot, when it hit him, the way he staggered. You know, as I say it now, I still picture in my head. It's burnt in my head. And so I was still grieving for having to watch that, see the man stagger, the shock of the bullet going through him. I watched that. And then a few days after, we saw the Karen, we saw Amy Cooper do her own thing, where she knew she weaponized her whiteness. She weaponized her tears against a black person. And if there was not a camera on ground, 
we would have believed that image of a black threatening man. And that is the image why a lot of black African men are in jail today. Because we believe that stereotype about them, that they are dangerous. And she played it and she weaponized her tears. So that happened. And then George Floyd happened. It was just pam, pam, pam. So like those things coincided. And it was just like almost saying enough. And so I think that the world got to a point where we just, the blinkers were off. People could see it. And so what you have in our own island here, in the island of Ireland, what you have here now, I have a paper coming out soon and I talk about stories, you know, how to teach about race. That stories, counter storytelling is really powerful. Storytelling is a powerful way. So what happened was that these stories pulled together, you know, uh, um, you know, when we look at, um, uh, you know, Brianna Taylor as well, you know, so we look at all those stories, they just, they accumulated you know, and so what those stories did that is suddenly freed people to tell their own stories. So in Ireland right now, you know, storytelling emboldens you. You know, the way you're talking to somebody and I say, oh, this happened to me. They're like, oh, yeah, I know somebody has happened to before. Oh, I know somebody. That's exactly what has happened. You know, so this moment meant that like in Ireland, what we are seeing is that a lot of young people from secondary schools have actually taken to social media. And they've talked about the level of racism that they have experienced in their classrooms in secondary school. And they've shared stories that they have never told even their parents. So it panicked me to even say, oh, my God, I know I talk to my son a lot about racism and his experience. You know, you know I try to prepare him for the world out there. So I had to go back again and say, OK, are there things that you have not told me? I know we talk a lot, but tell me, do you know, because these were young people. Some of them had left the school, so they had nothing to gain. You know, but they put their faces, they put the names of the schools, they put the names of their teachers, they put the names of the students. Some of them even shared videos of some of the racist incidents that they've experienced. Some of them went to the books that they study in secondary school of mice and men and, you know, different books and how teach some teachers actually enjoy, seem to have this... I don't know, sense of whatever, trying to make them use the N-word in class. You know, because some of those books have the N-word, you know, and that when the teachers teach it, don't even sensitize the class to say, these are racist things, you know, that used to happen. So these are ways for us to learn the kind of racist thing. That didn't happen. So it's like the teachers trying to make... So all of these stories have actually gone online. So storytelling is powerful. So anybody who is saying, how can I talk about race? Use stories. Share one story. It emboldens other people to share their stories. That's a, a really fascinating reading of this because clearly um, social media is at the heart of this moment, isn't it? In, in, in terms of the transmission of this information, the transmission of the horror of the videos that you were talking about, but also the transmission of all these new stories. Um, it's, it's at the heart of so much. Do you, do you think this has been a very transformative moment because of social media? Is, is this, would it be possible without it or is it different because of it? I think it wouldn't have been possible like for people like me, I have massive gatekeepers. You know, they know themselves. They are gatekeepers. They, they try and keep us out. So if not for social media, people like me and all these young people won't have been out there. But the, the other thing I wanted to come back to and pick up on there is, is something that's very much ongoing with you at the minute, as I understand it. And that is using webinars to reach a, a larger public and to engage them. And in one of these, I see you say, we need allies. Uh, bystanders are of no use to us. And I'm assuming that's an address to white folks, yeah? Absolutely. 
you know, and if we go back, you know, and I, and I, you know, we, I'm constantly drawing parallels from what happened with George Floyd, you know, and so that day that George Floyd died, there were bystanders there. If those bystanders did something, the story would be different. If that bystander, the three guards or the three police, if they said something, he would, the story would have ended differently. If the people who were taking the, the videos, fine, you know, they did their own bit by taking the videos. But if everybody, you know, did something, I know they were shouting, you know, shouting does not save, it didn't save George Floyd. And so what we're saying is that we do not need bystanders. Bystanders cannot do anything. Actually, bystanders kill. If we only have bystanders, people are going to, people are going to die. You know, in Ireland, we, we, the, people are not dying physically, but they are dying emotionally. They are dying mentally. You know, in, in one of the webinars we did, in one of the town hall meetings we did, you know, one of the participants talked about unmuting yourself. You know, when you're on Zoom, you know, you, you keep talking about, are you mute? Unmute yourself. And so it became a thing. We began to say, unmute yourself. And that's what I'm saying. We're saying, unmute yourself. Because bystanders are mutes. You're just watching. So we need our bystanders to unmute themselves. Don't just say this is bad. We need you to actually take action. So it is in the actions. It's in the doing something. It's in the challenging what you see. It's in the calling it out. Some people say, I'm not a racist, you know? So when you're not a racist, is it a passive, not a racist? Or is it an active, not a racist? So if it is a passive, not racist, then you are just as good as the racist. You are just as good as the bystander because you're going to watch that person being killed. You know, if, if somebody was robbing a house, you would at least make a phone call and say, I can see people breaking into a house. So if we did that for a car, we did that for a house, why won't we do it for lives? You know, and so when we say Black Lives Matter, it's because we don't see people picking up the phone to say, I can see a black life being destroyed here. We don't see people picking up the phone. And that's the question we're asking. If you're, if you're more outraged, about the, 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 you know, the protest, the outcome of the protest and, and maybe one or two looters who are looting, if you are more outraged about that than the black lives that are being killed and are being destroyed and the high level of inequality that they're experiencing, then we need to check ourselves. We need to check ourselves. If I'm more outraged than by the protest than I am about the fact that a, a black person can be searched and can be shot and can be killed, that they can go out of their house and not be sure that they will come back home in the United States, then they need to check themselves. We need to check our biases. Do you think Irish people are ready to check themselves? I, and, and I ask that honestly. Um, I mean, even looking at these very well-attended protests, a lot of that protest is within a very traditional mode. It's uh, it's it's sort of anti-American, if you like. A lot of the slogans are protesting against that, and uh, possibly even there's an anti-Trump element there as well. I mean, all of these things are underlying it. That's not to say there isn't a, a great desire to address more domestic issues, but at the same time, I just wonder how deep that desire is, and I wonder if the American focus sometimes deflects us away from the local issue as much as drawing attention to it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and and that and that was where we started from, you know, three four three weeks ago. You know, um, the, one of the reasons that one of the impetus for me to do a lot of these webinars on, you know, around the the you know the Black Lives Matter was because one or two politicians and people had actually gone online. You know, there was actually the first one. I was so outraged by it because he came online to be talking about the fact that there was no racism in Ireland. I'm like, no, 
you know, and he had a platform to use. So I was like, okay, we need to change the narrative. You know, we cannot let you be dictating and telling the world that there is no, no racism in Ireland, you know? And so people actually buy into that story, you know? So that's the dominant discourse. They buy into it. I've, I've certainly seen some comments made by employers and companies, but often they're in the rather vague and platitudes with reference to what's happening in the United States. I, I've rarely seen direct comments about structural racism in Ireland and, and rarely seen very much about direct provision, which we haven't mentioned yet. But I did notice in the protests in Dublin, at least, there were a lot of protesters and placards were about direct provision. They were making that connection. Has that connection been important for you? So one thing about racism is that you can be racist about a particular thing and not be racist about another thing. So in Ireland, there is uh, there are a lot of people who are anti-racist when it comes to direct provision. I don't mean the government. The government is totally still extremely racist when it comes to direct provision. Because if not, we would have ended the system, you know, and we would have knocked it on its head. So the government is still taking a, you know, it's still, you know, spewing out racist policies and racist ideas when it comes to people who are in direct provision. However, the majority of the Irish population actually believe that direct provision is absolutely one of the worst things that we have. So they are non racist, they are anti racist when it comes to that. And so every time they conflate the issue of race with direct provision. You know, so so direct provision is it's not about race, race itself, you know, but it, it again it is a fruit of all of that. So we so we conflate those two things together because it is an easier one for us to deal with. It's not so easy for us to deal with the fact that we are saying somebody who has the right to live and work, the person who has the right um qualifications, you know, that we are still um discriminating against them in the labor market. So that is a part that we are not, it's not easy for us as a nation to look at. So it is easier for us to look at the direct provision because we can blame the government. So any of all of us, we all like to blame the government, but the other ones means we have to blame the whole system. We have to blame ourselves and we don't want to do that. This suggests there's something of a blind spot in Ireland about what constitutes racism or what constitutes race. And I just wonder if that idea, I don't know how broad it is, but I wonder if it comes in some respect out of a colonial past. Uh, the idea that, well, hey, we were oppressed, so how can we be the oppressors? You occasionally hear this said. Is, is this an idea you've come across? Oh, definitely. And I've, and I've written about that. I, you know, I talk about how, and I've argued against that point, you know, where a lot of people will say that, you know, that we were colonized, you know, but we forget the fact that we were colonized as a nation, that the Irish were colonized as a nation. But we also, at one point in our history, we moved from becoming the colonized to becoming the colonizers. We whitewash history. And so we tell you in a palatable way, for example, when we talk about, you know, um, the enslavement of people, we never, you would never find a white history lecturer who would tell you that as Europeans, we went to Africa and we stole from them. But that's actually what we did. But we won't teach you like that. We won't tell you that a lot of our forefathers in history uh, went into Africa. We stole men, we stole women, we stole children. And then we stole their gold, we stole their, you know, land, we burnt down their land when they would not give it to us willingly. If you go to the Benin Empire, we burnt down the Benin Empire at one time. We won't teach you the history like that. 
So Chimamanda calls that the danger of a single story. Okay, so until the until the lion tells the tale, the hunter will tell the tale in the way that he is glorious, and that's what we've had for our history. So we've whitewashed our Irish history. We have not told you that yes, we were colonized by the British. We were colonized that even when we went to the Americas, we were um, enslaved. We were indentured, not just enslaved, but we were indentured slaves, servants. So it was an indentured servitude that we could buy back, you know. And they, when they bought it back in the Caribbeans, in the United States, if you if you go into a, a museum, archaeological center here, or even the Epics, Epic um, um, Museum there, you will look at the number of state presidents who have Irish ancestry. They say up to 75 million people in the world claim Irish ancestry. So Ireland, we are one of the biggest suppliers of people, you know, to other nations. So we talk about, our, we make you focus on our colonization. So we are the victims. We forget how we went into the Caribbeans, the Caribbean islands, and we were indentured there as Irish people. But after a while, we bought back our, our place. And the, re the reports that come back is that the Irish um um, enslavers were actually even worse than the original enslavers. And so that their, their plantations, their sugar plantations produced very well. Why? Because of the way they treated their, 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 the, the people they enslaved. So all of that money was sent back to Ireland. So, but we don't tell you that part of the story. And that's where the problem is. We whitewash it. We talk about a lot of Irish priests who went to Africa. On the on the on the storyline that they were going to, they were taking religion there. We go, let's go back into our history in Nigeria. It was an Irish person who reported about Nigeria that brought the British into the land. So let's go back. It's there in our history, and it's Paulo Freya that talks about the pedagogy of the oppressed. That when the oppressed, um, that the oppressed, if they are not careful, they become worse oppressors than the people who oppress them. It's clear that there is a. A revisiting of history going on right now, isn't there? Off the back of these protests, I mean, the most visible, spectacular element of that is the pulling down of statues and so on. How do you see that? Do you think that's significant in itself, or is it more of a window dressing on on what we should be looking at? I don't think it's window dressing. I think that's history in itself. When we pull down the statues, we are rewriting history. It is history. History is being made again. So that we can go back to that spot and say, you know, in 2020, these statues all moved and we then, as a people, we voted for the, the statues we wanted to see, the people who meant something to us. Who decides what statue goes up? How, how, how am I passing, you know, I'm going into school and the statue I see every day is a statue of the people who robbed, you know, or yes, they did one or two, they did many good things, but those are not the role models that we want in 2020 for our young people growing up. So it's time to change it. They should go back, they should go into our history books, you know, and then let us put real good role models that our young people can emulate. I think there are signs that people are listening in this country. Um, I think that's in part because people like yourself are helping to move that bar and are telling stories that need to be heard. I wish you well with all of that. And I hope our listeners will tune in to your uh, town hall webinars in the weeks to come. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. 
that's it for this episode of America Unfiltered. Be sure to subscribe to us on all your favorite podcast platforms. Thank you for listening. Stay safe wherever you are. I'm Liam Kennedy. Goodbye from Dublin.